welcome back for a new episode of MFA Writers. Today we're featuring a really unique program, the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. This episode was requested by Shalini Singh. I hope you like it, Shalini. Our writer today is Keely O'Connell, a wonderful essayist who's had some amazing life experiences in the wilderness that inspire her writing. Keely is currently living in a yurt just outside Fairbanks, so she recorded the interview from her shared office on campus. If you hear a bit of background noise in this episode, that's what it is. Thank you, Keely, for chatting with me, and thanks to all of you for listening. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. Feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners, and if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Keely O'Connell. Keely is a third-year MFA student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Her focus is in nonfiction, and her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Northwest Review, Hippocampus, and Craft. Today, Keeley is going to read an excerpt from an essay in progress titled, Maybe the Same Wolf. With the chainsaw and the snow machine running, the air immediately around us is fuzzed with noise and sawdust and exhaust. The sawdust is gold, and the snow machine's headlight is gold, and the light bounces off the particles in the air and up from the snow and whirls in the falling, swirling cloud of our activity so that everything in our bubble is gold. Beyond the light and dust and exhaust, the air is black and frozen and still. Jeff and I are cutting firewood for our camp on a lakeshore 30 miles south of Arctic Village, where we both teach. The village is two hours by air from Fairbanks, which has the nearest paved road, and the two of us are completely alone except for the puppy we've left curled up on the cot beside the wood stove in the tent. There is probably not another human being for more than 20 miles in any direction. I am 27 and it is my third winter in Alaska, but it is my first winter, really, in the wilderness. I have just moved into a cabin with Jeff, my boyfriend, a difficult man 20 years my senior whose tenderness with dogs and children stands out against his impatience with everyone else. He's most at home outdoors, and he moves with a second-nature kind of grace in heavy winter gear that makes everyone else seem clumsy and overpadded. I love camping with him because he is beautiful when he is miles from humanity, and the land without humanity is more beautiful, too. Often in the winter, I catch myself thinking how gorgeous the last ice age must have been and how few people ever got to bear witness to it. How lucky I am. I'm trying to learn from Jeff how to take what I want from the world. He is never afraid of selfishness. He allows himself to want greedily. Wildness, pleasure, time, he wants it and he takes it, whenever and wherever he can. I want it too. I want beauty and terror and exhilaration and to be humbled and to be madly in love and to crumble at my own limits and to make extraordinary art, but I'm a little ashamed of all that desire, and I'm a little afraid to take hold of what I want and run. I've done it a few times, and there's always been a price to pay. Love, always a price levied in love. Maybe I'm ashamed of the relationship I sacrificed to be here, come to Alaska, of my willingness to give up something great for the chance at something greater. 
Maybe I'm looking for justification or absolution. Jeff isn't afraid of any cost, doesn't need forgiveness. He just goes after things, and I'm trying to figure out how he does it. For the next two years, I will watch him break trail through the snow and pour whiskey in his glass, and I'll try to make sense of his confidence and try to decide if he's happy and try to decide if it's hedonism exactly. Can it be hedonism when your fingertips freed to your carabiners when you tie down the load on your sled? And try to decide if he's right to allow himself to want and want and want. I don't think so, but I want to. I want to. Keely, thanks so much for sharing that excerpt with us and for taking the time to be here and chat with me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Although your lifestyle and your writing is very much entwined with Alaska and the wilderness there, you're originally from the coast of Maine. So what was life like in Maine and how did you become so interested in wilderness living? Um, gradually, I guess. Uh, I grew up with a family that had a series of boats. First, some really small, really crappy boats that broke down all the time and gradually nicer boats. <laughs> and so for a couple of weeks every summer when I was a kid, we'd go out to the islands off the coast of Maine. There's like 3,000 islands on the main coast um, and camp and explore. And so I grew up doing that, which I didn't think of as wilderness until a lot later. But those places were remote and um, not frequented by a lot of people. So that's probably the origin of that fascination for me. And so at what point did you start writing? And what things were you writing about in those early days, I guess? I'm like, I'm, I think a classic story. Like I've been writing forever. You know, my mom has the box of little kid stories somewhere. Fiction. I was really into some dragons. I was a nerdy, quiet little kid that read a lot and wrote a lot of fiction <laughs> from a pretty young age. I didn't sort of tumble to nonfiction until college. So when you were like going out onto these islands with your family, was there, did you, did you find that like that setting was making it into those like early stories that you were writing? Absolutely not. No, um, no, I was like all in my imagination. I thought my life was so boring. <laughs> Just any other little kid. <laughs> Typical experience, right? We all think that the place we grew up in is the most boring place on the face of the earth. I don't know about you. I can't speak for you, but no, that's spot on. <laughs> still, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a tiny town and I remember thinking it was so boring. I couldn't wait to get out. And then the longer I was away from it, the more interesting it seemed to me and the more it started finding its way into my stories. So maybe it was similar for you that like, as you got away from it, like at what point did you start seeing that like wilderness setting start to creep into the stuff that you were writing or the stuff that you were interested exploring in your writing? I, I don't think I put it together. I'm not, I don't know, maybe I'm just not that bright, but I don't think I put it together until after it had been going on for quite a while. Um, that, you know, the, the coast of Maine stuff doesn't really make it into my writing much unless I'm writing about my childhood. I haven't lived there for a really long time. Um, so the, the natural world that I would write about as I was in college um, or in Arkansas where I'd lived before I came to Alaska or here, it, I didn't make the connection at all um, to that that kind of upbringing. But it definitely, um, when I started writing nonfiction as like a sophomore, it was there. It was, that was, that was right what I went for. You mentioned Arkansas. So like before you moved to Alaska, you were a high school math teacher in rural Arkansas. So connect the dots for us. How did you get from the coast of Maine to teaching math in rural Arkansas? Um, well, I went to college and majored in English 
because I liked to read like everybody <laughs> does and ended up kind of at loose ends. And so applied for Teach for America, ended up being a Teach for America teacher for two years in rural Arkansas. And I wanted to go to someplace rural because I was really into kind of the local food movement and wanted to be someplace where I could have a garden and raise some pigs. And um, my boyfriend at the time and I were all about it. So we set up our little homestead in Arkansas uh, for a couple of years. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a neat place to get to be. What was teaching like? Teaching in Arkansas was, it was my first exposure to teaching. So it's hard to really know. I had a, I had a pretty positive experience for the most part. My students were wonderful and they put up with me learning how to teach by practicing <laughs> on them. Yeah. Um, it was hard too. I mean, Arkansas's, I'd never been any place like that. I'd grew up in, I grew up in like liberal New England um, and rural Arkansas is not that. So I don't know. It had its, had its ups and downs. It's hard to care so much about, you know, you're a teacher, you care so much about your students and they are, they believe a lot of things that I don't believe. And that was hard sometimes, but you know, you learn to make connections across difference in that situation. I, I loved it. Math was weird. I was going to ask, my background's in English education as well. So I've, I've taught English. I was just thinking like, how did you end up teaching math in Arkansas? That's just a Teach for America thing. They're like, oh, really? yeah, you had one math credit in college or like one math course. Like, sure. We're like, okay. Um, which was actually was really cool. I think I became a better teacher because I was teaching something that I wasn't passionate about and kind of had to relearn. I think it made me more understanding of students that struggled with it. Um, than I would have been if I'd started out teaching English because I would have just been like, why do you not love this? <laughs> it's interesting to hear you talk about differences of like worldviews between you and your students, but like being able to like bridge that divide and find connections another way, which was my experience as well teaching. Obviously, like I, I had lots of students who had viewpoints that did, I didn't agree with, but you find the humanity in each other, right? And you make connections in other ways. And in I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, it like really inspired my writing later. I think it was like working the same muscles. It might be slightly different with nonfiction, but for me, like fiction is a, it's a practice and empathy, right? Trying to understand people who are different from you and having all of that experience around all those kids with those different upbringings that I did really inspired my writing later. Did you find a similar experience? I think, I don't know if it inspired my writing just as, as much as it like inspired me to yeah. dig a little deeper. Yeah. Um, you know, the, my boyfriend at the time took me out shooting. I'd never shot a gun before. And we went, he had a couple shotguns that his grandpa had given him and we went and shot in the yard. And I came into school the next day and I had a big old bruise on my shoulder and all of my kids knew exactly what that was. They were like, Oh, you've been shooting. You, you need to get, you know, get a better hold on that gun. You got to tuck it in that pocket, you know, and I'm, <laughs> It was baffling, but it it pushed me, I think, to, to, you know, try new things and connect in new ways. And I think, I don't know, those were some kids that had a real connection to the the place where they lived. And that inspired me, too. It was wildly different from the way that I had connected to the coast of Maine. But, you know, my grandpa farmed this same farm with horses, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. It was, wow. it was a deep kind of connection. So... At what point did you start thinking about moving to Alaska? Uh, my superintendent was a jerk and I didn't like him. And in the middle of my third 
year of teaching in Arkansas. I stayed after my Teach for America contract ended. Um, in the middle of the third year, I got just overwhelmed. I didn't like the guy I was working for, and they doubled our class sizes that year. The other math teacher had had some personal issues and wasn't really around, and so it was, I don't know, I was just carrying too much. Mm-hmm. Started to started to take a toll on me, like mentally and physically, and I thought, you know, I need to get out of here. I'd always had a kind of uh, fascination with Alaska. I'd never been here, but I always kind of wanted to go check it out and see what see what the fuss was all about. Yeah, so I I started applying for jobs um, in that fall semester, and I I gave them my resignation like effective Christmas about two months in advance. And said I'm out of here and uh, moved to the Arctic Circle, <laughs> <laughs> as one does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you continued to teach when you went to Alaska. You were teaching in a small village, as I understand it. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, um, that's where I want to end up. That's kind of my, my happiest, happiest place. I was teaching in a teeny tiny village called Vinitai, um, maybe 50 miles North of the Arctic circle. It's fly in only, um, like 200 people live there. They're all Gwich'in, Athabascan. Um, so I got to just, like, I was just being exposed to a, a way of life that I had no, no idea about. I really had no clue. Um, most people there live in dry cabins without running water. And it's just in some ways a very traditional place. And in other ways not. I mean, it was a modern school doing innovative educational things. Uh, I had a wonderful time. I had a class of mostly girls, grades 6 through 12. We had a blast together. Just it was, it was wild. It was full kind of self-contained 6 through 12 teaching. So I had the same kids all day and I taught every subject and it was just like having this big gigantic family of teenagers. <laughs> I loved it. it. Wasn't for everybody. And so what what was your living situation like when you were living up there? Were you also in a cabin without running water? Not at that point. Um the first first couple years in the Arctic I I lived in teacher housing, which is just a lovely warm cozy apartment with running water and the whole nine yards. I'd have kids come over to use my bathroom and take a shower and stuff all the time. Cause it was one of the only houses in town where you could do that. Um, I was right next to the playground too. So I'd have kids knock on the door for band-aids and stuff all the time. But yeah, so, so my teacher housing was, was like a lovely modern apartment with, with all of the amenities. Um, it wasn't until I moved to a different village, Arctic village, uh, after a few years and moved into a, a cabin with a difficult man, as I wrote about in this, this piece. And that's when I learned to live without running water, which is surprisingly lovely and easy, and I still do it. <laughs> well, around this time that you moved to Alaska, you started a blog. What did you hope to accomplish in chronicling that transition to Alaska and your experience there? I guess, you know, the the blog started even before I knew I was going anywhere, because I thought what we were doing in Arkansas was interesting. Uh, a lot of raising our own food and my boyfriend was really into curing meat, so we made our own bacon and salami and cool stuff like that. Um, and so kind of started out just writing about those things that were ordinary for us and unusual for most other people. And then when I started transitioning to Alaska, that was like I had something wild to write about every day. It was like 
the everything was so new and different and I still had perspective on what people from outside think is strange or what they believe about Alaska. I think about that sometimes that I've kind of lost that in my writing or it's harder for me to access than it was then when I shared a lot of those like misconceptions or beliefs or just the strangeness of Alaska. Yeah. Do you ever go back and read those old posts and try to jog your memory of what it was like to move here? Absolutely. I, yeah. I mine that stuff for material all the time because it's, it is, it's really rich. <laughs> yeah. That's super interesting. So like, did you feel that in the process of keeping that essentially public journal that you learn something about like your own interests as a writer? Yeah. Yeah. I think as I was writing it, I would write until I felt satisfied. And so when I'd go to make a post about something, I'd kind of have an idea in mind of like, what did I want to share? And then I'd write it out until it felt right. And I think that was kind of, I don't know. It was, it was a drafting experience for me. It was like learning to, learning to know when something's complete. And I don't think I'd done that before. Yeah. And, and putting it out there so that people can interact with it or give you feedback. I mean, in some ways that's similar to the workshop experience, I guess, you know, people, you can see how people's interactions, how people interact with your writing and and how they react to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, kind of, I built relationships through it more than received any kind of feedback. It was usually people would comment and be like, I'm also doing this with my pigs. Can, do you have any <laughs> advice? I'd be like, yeah. Um, so it was very content oriented kind of readership and connection with people until I came to Alaska. And then it was very, I guess it was still very content oriented, but uh, it was never all, it was never about like feedback on the writing or very rarely did anybody comment on the writing except to say like, this is great. Keep doing it, which is overwhelmingly positive, which is nice for a a writer who's figuring things out. Yeah. I was just going to say when you're figuring it out, sometimes that's just what you need is someone to say like, you're doing great. Keep going, keep writing. Yeah. And there was, there was a lot of that. I liked, I loved all the connections that I made. I mean, I, I feel like I have some, some blog friends that are still out there in eSpace that are like, yeah, great job, Keely. You're doing good. Been with you from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, this piece that you read from is partially about the ways that you've changed since moving to Alaska and the ways you've become more wild and more at home in the wilderness. And it specifically details two encounters that you had with wolves in the wild and how different it felt Uh, each time that you had those encounters. It's a great piece and I can't wait for someone to pick it up so that everyone else can read it. But until then, maybe you can talk a bit about why these types of experiences are so important to you and how they've affected your worldview. I guess the, the experiences that I like to write about are the ones that feel like they turn me inside out or like reduce me to just something something that is human without any extra stuff on it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that's something I, that's something I'm working towards more in my, in my work is why is it that I'm so attracted to these experiences and it's not an adrenaline rush. um, Exactly. It's something about being paired back to bare necessities and why that's good for my brain. Cause it, it always is whenever something like that happens, it leaves me thinking for days about what it is to be human and what it is that I want. Um, 
So I think, I think these are experiences that make me a better person and kind of digging into why I think that or what it is that, about those experiences that makes me think differently about the world is rich and fun. Yeah. And you, you know, I like that idea of like having an experience that turns you inside out because then those experiences linger after that moment. Right. And then it's, it becomes about understanding your reaction to that moment and understanding what it means about you. And that's like you said, super rich for nonfiction writing, I assume. Yeah. It's absolutely what, what you want. I, I, maybe I just want to have excuses to go out and do stuff. And I'm like, if I'm a writer, if I, if I write about these things, then that's, that's a good reason to go do foolish stuff. It gives you permission, I guess. Yeah. Definitely a part of it. Don't tell. (laughs) (laughs) well this story is partially about events that happened years ago so in general do you find that you need time to process events before writing about them or do you write as a way to process them i write as a way to process them and the writing is usually like one dimensional so i have a bunch of drafts of of essays that i wrote immediately after something happened um and a year later, if I go back to them, I can make something of them. So I think maybe the writing, the initial writing is just recording. Like these are the sense details that are important. And this is what happened because your memory is not going to be accurate in a week or a month or a year. And then on reading, and usually I'm like, yeah, this is good stuff. Like I'm loving this draft. And then I give it to somebody and they're like, what is this even about? Like, oh. <laughs> oh, it has to be about something. <laughs> yeah, the first draft is always kind of um, just one dimensional and, and a lot of real like narrative action. I write, I think I write pretty good action. And so I get all this down in the first pass and then I have to go back and be like, what is the, what is the inner story here? And pick that apart later after the experience has had time to kind of marinate with me. Well, this piece, I have had the benefit of reading the whole thing. And I think there's just a great balance between the introspection and that narrative action. The first time that you encounter the wolf in the wild, I won't spoil it, but it's, it, my heart was racing as I was reading. It was wonderfully, wonderfully written. Thank you. So I'm curious about how you balance writing with living in the conditions that you're living in. Like, do you find it hard to find time to write? What's your writing schedule usually look like? Are you, are you, able to find time each day to write or do you write in bursts? How does that usually work for you? I write in bursts. Um, and I don't write at all in the summer when I have plenty of free time. I kind of have, I think I was just being contrary the first year, at least of the, during the program. I haven't been writing in the summer except to journal. I think the first, yeah, the first summer I was maybe just being contrary. Like I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm, I, <laughs> no. And then last summer, I think I realized how good it was for me to not and to just do stuff and have experiences and not hold myself accountable for sharing them or recording them or doing anything with them right away. So if I really want to, I'll write, but in the summer, definitely no schedule during the, during the year when my schedule is a little bit more set by university stuff. Um, twice a week, my boyfriend drives me to campus. He has an 8am class. And so from eight to nine, I sit in the Miri building and watch the sun come up and write from the second floor. And that's great because I'm not in my home space and it kind of gets me started. And usually from there, like that afternoon, I'll come back and 
bust out another couple hours of working on something. Well, you mentioned now you're you're not completely in the wilderness anymore. You've since moved to Fairbanks for the MFA program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. The program is, according to the website, a rigorous three-year residency combining in-depth study of literature with an intensive focus on fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, and dramatic writing. So what made you want to pursue the MFA? It was time for a change. I'd been in Alaska for almost five years, I guess. And I had been in the village for that whole time. So I think I had met like 300 Alaskans total in five years. Um, I needed I needed to meet some people, make some friends, and kind of get a community around me that felt more like mine um, and where I didn't have to be on my best behavior because I'm a teacher. It's kind of a weird thing about being a teacher is in your community, you're always a little bit on on your best behavior. So coming to Fairbanks was kind of a way for me to to connect with some folks who I knew would share some of my interests um, and pursue something that I was passionate about. Part of it too is, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there all day, every day telling kids like, figure out what you like to do and then go do it. And I like writing and I want to do it. So why shouldn't I just go to grad school? So I did. That's great. That's the perfect reason, I think. And the, the website talks a lot about the lifestyle in Fairbanks. It says students in the program receive not just an intellectual education, but an experiential one an opportunity to live more simply and purposefully, and in doing so, develop new ways of seeing the world. So tell me about Fairbanks. How would you describe your lifestyle there? Ah, Fairbanks. Um, I So for me, Fairbanks feels like the big city. It's not. It's like the tiniest little town. <laughs> um, people are getting on me all the time about it. But because uh, of the where I transitioned from, I feel a little – I always feel a little bit overwhelmed by being in town. Other people find it's like very rustic and um, limited. Uh, I don't, it really just is individual taste. I like the area a lot. I mean, you can go a half hour out of town and you're on top of a mountain. You can build a campfire and pick blueberries and drive two hours. You can go hunt caribou and it's incredible. You put your boat in, in the river, like downtown and you can float past a couple bars and get a margarita at each one. And then you can go out on the Tanana and for the next 300 miles, you won't see a living soul. And it's awesome. So we're right. We're, I guess like the borderland of the, of the wilderness. As far as the lifestyle thing though, the, um, so yeah, if you want to do any of that stuff, Fairbanks is a great place. If you want to go hiking or biking or skiing or whatever, I walk or ski to campus pretty frequently. I live about three miles away and it's all on trail, which is amazing and beautiful and wonderful. Most of the students in the program, maybe more than half live in dry cabins. So don't have running water. You can go to a water wagon in town and fill up your jugs and tote them home. And it's an adjustment. But the whole community is kind of set up to facilitate that. So there's lots of showers on campus and people kind of expect you to smell funny and look a little raggedy. Uh, It's just normal Fairbanks. Somebody's, what did they say about Alaskan fashion? It's function forward. (laughs) So everybody wears rubber boots every day. And you are currently living full-time in a yurt, which, you know, you told me might sound a little odd, but like you just mentioned, 
maybe the majority of your classmates are living without running water. So what's it been like transitioning from where you were before in the village to Fairbanks, which is bigger, but now you're living in a yurt. How's, how's that been? And what's your life like? What's life like in the yurt? I mean, it's interesting for me. I'm sure for you, it's just normal everyday stuff now. But for, for me, I, I don't know what that would be like. I love it. The yurt's beautiful. Um, the, the way that they're constructed, they're round, right? And there's mm-hmm. a big skylight in the middle. Right. Uh, I heat with exclusively wood. So I've got my wood stove with my crackling little fire in it in the middle. And it's incredibly cozy. It's very small. There's 314 square feet because it's a 20 foot diameter. Really teeny tiny. It's like living in somebody's living room. But I'd, I think when I came in from the village, I, I, I built the yurt. That was my project. And it's my little acreage that I bought with my teaching money. And uh, I, I think I wanted to hang on to as much of the closeness with the land as I could when I came in. I was worried about sort of losing touch with what I had found to be so meaningful about living out in the village. So I made sure that my driveway doesn't go up to the house. You know, you have to, there's a little trail and you have to hike a hundred yards through the trees every day to go to or from the driveway to get to the door, which is a pain when you're carrying groceries or you have to haul water or whatever. But it's also lovely because sometimes there's a moose or a fox and one day I saw chickadees bathing in <laughs> in a little puddle. Um, and so it forces you to stay connected. Same with the wood heat. I could get a, a oil heater, but I prefer chopping my firewood and holding myself accountable for that little bit of activity and connecting to where I am. So yeah, I chop wood, I haul water, I do my dishes with my big pot of water that I heat on the wood stove. And it's very rustic. It's a lot of work, but I think it keeps me sane, keeps me who I want to be. Well, you mentioned that one of the reasons you wanted to move to Fairbanks and do the program was to meet some new people. So what's the community been like um, between you and your classmates in the program? We're a pretty small program. I I should be able to count how many of the, us there are off the top of my head, and I can't just summon up a number, but less than 15, maybe right around 15. And I think they are the best part of my experience here. That's also what I wanted to come here for. That's the experience that I wanted or the part of the experience that I most wanted. So I have a friend, Allison, who's an amazing fiction writer, and she will be my workshop buddy for the rest of my life. We've, we've made a pinky swear, and she's a great reader for my work, and she knows all of my typical flaws so she can beeline for them and that's really cool and I can do the same for her and there are a couple new women in my program this year first year nonfiction writers absolutely incredible I'm so excited to have more nonfiction writers in the program this year and to be able to like well just keep you yeah please blurb my book someday <laughs> um so yeah that that's been great we hang out socially we've been in the little pandemic pod from the beginning Mm-hmm. All of all of the people in my year are kind of in that in that bubble together, and everybody comes over to the yurt, and we have campfires and cook marshmallows, and it's it's pretty swell. So that's been that's been huge. Lots of board games and social nights, and there's nothing to do in Fairbanks, so we all just hang out at each other's houses and cook dinner, and it's really sweet. Sounds great. 
And how important do you think that is for you as a writer to make those lifelong workshop friends? I think because I have every intention of going back to living in the wilderness, having those connections is going to be vital for me as a writer because I'm going to need somebody that I can send my work to and say, hey, would you please read this and tell me what you think? What What's wrong? What's missing? And I don't think I can just pick someone. You know, I, I could ask my dad. He's cool, but he's not a writer. So, yeah, I think it's I think that's super vital for me, particularly. I don't know about for everybody else. I think in some other places it might be more possible to be like, I'm in a city and I can get a writer's group. Well, let's talk a bit more about life in the program itself. There's not a ton of information on the website, so I'm hoping we can try to paint a picture for anyone who's considering applying. So you mentioned that there are about 15 students in the program. So is that like the entire program or is that each year coming in? Uh, That's the entire program. And it's a three-year program. So you're thinking like maybe five students are coming in each year? Yeah, something like that. It varies pretty widely from year to year. And not everyone stays the whole three years. Folks leave for a variety of reasons. So... And, and right now they're doing something kind of different where we have a bunch of folks who are distance. So some folks have joined the program and they're like fully remote, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out in the long haul. And how are those, are those students, are they like zooming into the classes that you're in or are they in separate classes? Right now I'm in one in-person grounded class and my other classes are on Zoom anyway. So they're zooming into those and there are no remote students in the one grounded class. I don't know whether that's just we got lucky and got to have a fully in-person crew or what the deal was with that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it was just sort of how it worked out. And are most of the students from Alaska or people coming from all over to Fairbanks? A mix. There's a, a few Alaskan writers. There's, you know, there's me and both of the new women in the program who are both in nonfiction are Alaskan. Nope. Uh, there's three, three new folks in the program who are Alaskan. So pretty most, mostly from away, but some from here. And like, what's a typical semester look like? Like what kind of classes are you taking in a typical semester? Usually I'm taking a lit class and a workshop and then something else. Sometimes a, we had a couple, you know, there's a, a theory class that's a requirement. And we have a teaching methods class that's a requirement for TAs. So those are kind of the fill in the gaps things. And then a bunch of thesis hours. I love thesis hours. So in those thesis hours, you're, I assume you're like working one-on-one with a professor on your manuscript? Yeah. How's that been going? Great. Um, I took, I mean, thesis hours for the first, the first semester that I took them, I was just working on my own. I was cranking out material and bringing it to workshop. And that was just me buying time in my schedule to be able to do that. This semester, since I'm getting closer to actually having to finish a thesis and defend, um, I meet every week with my advisor and that's been tremendous. He's a really good reader. Uh, Daryl Farmer is my advisor for anybody out there who's listening and curious. And he's absolutely, he gives outstanding feedback. So that once a week thing is kind of pushing me to do some revisions, which is nice. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, um, it, it's a little different in every program, of course, but like being able to meet with your thesis advisor once a week is quite a, quite a lot. 
So are you like trying to bring a new story each week or are you revising old stories and bringing them in or how's that usually work? Um, so far I've been bringing something new each week. I have, I think I have 15 essays or something right now that are in various states of finishedness and just sort of throwing one at Daryl every week and seeing what he comes back with. But I'm going to run out soon. I'll start, I'll start getting him revisions. <laughs> well, that's great. It's like uh, your own personal one-on-one workshop there. What, what is the normal workshop like? Uh, look like? How many students are in there? Um, You said that you can take some remote, you can take some in person. So what's a typical workshop look like? Uh, Typically about six students. Okay. And they're usually multi-genre workshops. I've workshopped um, folks who are bringing poetry or fiction stories. I'm getting a real kick out of the fiction in my workshop right now. There's some absolutely incredible stuff coming across my desk, which is great. That's cool. So, the, so are there workshops that are specifically for one genre or are they all pretty much multi-genre where you're workshopping fiction, nonfiction, poetry, whatever in one workshop? Uh, they're mostly multi-genre just because our program is so small. The numbers don't really work out that you can have a, a single genre workshop. Right now, I think there are two poets in the program and they're both awesome, but that's not enough for a, a whole workshop. We are required to take two forms classes. So I've taken forms of poetry and forms of nonfiction. And that means that I have a bunch of poetry that I can bring to workshops sometimes if I feel like it, which is also kind of nice. I think that's something our program does well is just sort of says, you can do whatever, have fun with it. So what would you say that you've learned from taking forms classes in different genres and from reading and workshopping work from other students that's not in your genre? I think I've learned to appreciate the different things that people who are really skilled in different genres are bringing to the table. I can't write plot like to save my life. When I write fiction, it is, it's awful. And so getting to read people who do it really well makes me aware of that, but also gives me the opportunity to connect with people. If I ever decide I want to write a book, like a novel, I can say, Hey, I know you're really good at this. Can you like help me get started? And that's, that's been really fun. The same thing with poetry. I think poetry and nonfiction have a, a lot in common too, especially the kind of way, the way that I write nonfiction is less research-based and like more lyrical. So the forms of poetry class was fun because it let me kind of play with ideas and different forms that are poem based. And then turn them into essays because that's what I really wanted to do. And then I also saw on the website that students in the program are required to take a comprehensive exam, which is not a thing that's required in the majority of MFA programs, I don't think. So what can you tell us about that experience? Mm, It was stressful. I took the nonfiction comprehensive exam and it was based on a list of a whole bunch of nonfiction texts, like excellent nonfiction texts. And then I got to choose five texts that I wanted to read to add to that. So I picked some writers that were like based in the North and I got to, I chose a Pam Houston short story collection because I love her, even though it's fiction and they let me get away with that. So there's, there's some flexibility in what you're reading for comps. And then you're given a bunch of essay questions and you sit down in one day 
and you write a bunch of essays about all of the books that you've had to read over the last year. And it's a little soul crushing. And I typed so much that day, my fingers started to hurt. And then it was over. And it was actually wonderful. I think, I think being made to read all of those texts was good for me. I don't think I would have necessarily sought them out if I hadn't been sort of forced, especially the craft books. You know, they're good for references and stuff like get them on your shelf. And then you're like, that's a craft book. And I might look at that someday. But actually being made to kind of read them and connect with them, I think was was really good for me to do in my own time. So I, I, I liked that we had to do it. I did not enjoy it. No one enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I think it's and I think there's value in it. Like turning out writers that have familiarized themselves with kind of the the works that you might end up talking about in their genre is is useful about how many books were on the list uh lots (laughs) they're not all books i had there's probably 15 book length works and then a whole bunch of essays maybe a little maybe a little bit more if you count the craft books um and yeah so 15 to 20 book length works and then a whole bunch of essays that were kind of loose and that was that was great. I read some wonderful stuff that I wouldn't have picked up otherwise. But it was very stressful in the weeks leading up to it. And you're like, oh, God, I still have five books to read and I have two days. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I was poking around the site and it doesn't seem that Alaska Fairbanks is a fully funded program. But there are some teaching assistantships that provide a stipend and tuition remission. We've talked about how there are maybe like 15 students in the program. Do you have a sense of how many students are funded? I think almost all of them. Okay. Anybody who really wants to be, if, if they're not in their first semester, they'll have the opportunity later on to pick up a TA ship. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone who came in this year is funded. And everyone who came in my year is currently funded, even if they weren't at some point. So it's, it's, very, it's a pretty well-funded program. Like the tuition remission bit is great. The stipend is garbage, but, you know, we, we make it work. Yeah. Well, I have to ask because people want to know, how much is the stipend? The stipend's about 1100 bucks a month. Okay. And in Fairbanks, I don't know, rent can be from like five to 700 And then you're hauling water and worrying about heating and food is half again as expensive as it is in the lower 48. So cost of living is high. I, I'm leaving the TA ship next semester and... I mean, all I have to do is take thesis hours next semester. So leaving my TA ship, probably going to go get a real job and have decent health insurance again. We do have graduate student health insurance. It's just garbage. The tuition remission is really is great. And our teaching experience is, is really good. But the stipend isn't enough to live on. And it's a conversation that the department's having right now is, I think, trying to figure that out. There's also a budding graduate student union that is being kind of put together by one of the writers in our, our program. And so they're going to be hopefully advocating for some better, some better compensation for us down the line. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell every MFA student that wants to hear it, that if you don't have a union, you should be working to try to get one now for these types of things, improve health insurance, improve stipend. So um, you mentioned that the stipend's about $1,100 a month. I'm assuming that that's just during the school year, like nine months out of the year, you get $1,100 a month. Yeah. And because I'm me, I don't work in the summer. I kind of, you know, coming from 
actual teacher pay to making 1100 bucks a month, nine months of the year is a real come down. And I refuse to work for less than I think I'm worth. So in the summertime, I just try not to spend any money and hang out in my yurt and watch chickadees at the bird feeder and stuff. <laughs> That's, that sounds better. Yeah, it's all right. I, I've been able to make it work so far, but this year I'm going to have to actually go get a job in the spring semester. So what's the workload like as a teacher? We have 20 hours a week. That's kind of the the number that you get given. Uh-huh. Five hours of that is work at the writing center, which is nice. So you're sitting up there and waiting for people to come in or doing calls from the phone or Zoom or whatever. And the 15 hours a week of teaching is you're going to be working one 111X class, the writing, basic writing okay. class. It's not really a college comp class. Uh, other schools might call it that, but writing across context. There we go. That's the, the title I was reaching for. And that's, I'll, I'll come back to that because that's really interesting in a second. In subsequent years, like after your first year, you have the opportunity if you want to teach a 200 level writing class. And those can be, you can kind of design your own syllabus for that. So you'll, you'd get 20 students and a semester and you'd have your syllabus approved and then go forth and best of luck to you. And that's been really neat. I have a friend who's teaching a um, 200 level writing class that's got kind of a theme of mental health and literature and another who's doing digital literacy as a theme so that it can be really a lot of different things. So those can be really fun. So you teach one course per semester and then you also work five hours in the writing center. Yes. Okay. And then you told me before the interview that UAF has a really unique teaching situation that is weird and innovative and has some ups and downs, but you think is ultimately really freaking cool. So I have to know what this is all about. Yeah. So my background is teaching and I was a classroom teacher and it was me in front of a classroom full of kids and they were my kids and it was my classroom. We have at the 111X level, like the, the first year that a graduate student is a TA, they teach 111X and they do it in a hub. We team teach, okay, which has taken a variety of different forms and some have worked really well and others have not. And we do hybrid classes. So there's some that are in person and some that are on zoom and some that are both at the same time. And right now I'm in a teaching pod with two other TAs. And so this morning, one of them stayed home because it was her boyfriend's birthday and she wanted to make him breakfast. And so the other two of us taught class. And so in that way, teaching is a little bit less burdensome. I think having somebody to share that responsibility with is really, really nice. And planning and grading, it kind of goes that way with everything. As long as we're communicating well, it's a really kind of low stress way to start out. We do some curriculum design together and create assignments and launch them and grade them together. And I love it, but it's not for everybody. (laughs) Okay, so just just so I'm clear, like essentially there are three TAs teaching one class? We teach three classes. Oh, you teach three classes. Okay. Yeah, so between us, we teach three. And we share, so we kind of just share all the students. There isn't really, there's not my class and your class and her class. Um, 
so two of them are grounded right now and we're meeting students in person and one of them is fully online. And we actually kind of have them meshed into one big giant 60 person class. It's definitely different. (laughs) The director of writing at UAF, Sarah Stanley is, I think she's a genius. Um, She's incredible. And she's also like wild and she'll try anything once. So we're experimenting and finding cool things that work and sticking with them, but it's sometimes been a bit of a wild ride and yeah, I love it, but there are no other third year TAs in the hub right now. And I assume that once you, if you want to teach that 200 level class where you're creating your own curriculum, it's more like a standard, just you and your class kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely could, if you wanted to uh, co-teach it, You'd have to just pitch that to the department and Sarah would back anybody up that wanted to do that. She's been trying to get that going on. And one semester we did have a, a team taught hybrid 200 level class that was like themed around food justice, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of like flexibility in this program to just kind of even like with the workshops being multi-genre with the teaching this pod thing and the flexible curriculum it sounds like you have a lot of options to kind of explore what interests you yeah yeah absolutely I think when I uh, when I applied to UAF I had my application portfolio had it had nonfiction and poetry in it you know it was just like (laughs) (laughs) here's some stuff I wrote and they're like okay yeah we can work with this um and I ended up sort of sticking with sticking with nonfiction after kind of experimenting. I dabbled with a, a fiction story for a while. I thought maybe that would be my thesis. And so there's a lot of room, a lot of room for that here. And I love that. It works well for me. I think it works well for people who know what they want or know how to figure out what they want. I think it's probably a less ideal situation for people who want a lot of guidance. Well, I'm also curious about what kinds of opportunities are available to students outside of the classes themselves. So I saw that there's a visiting writer series called Midnight Sun. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we've had so pandemic stuff has gotten in the way of us having visiting writers visit. But we've had some really cool Zoom visits um, and promised in-person visits in the future. (laughs) Um, We had Elena Passarello here uh, two weeks ago. And that was awesome. Just like getting to talk to her. She's an amazing essayist uh, and ask questions and that kind of thing. We have also local writers that will come in for that. And that's cool. Like you'll bump into them at the co-op or when you go to vote. Um, (laughs) You're like, oh, I know you. (laughs) You know, one thing that's really neat about that is like, I haven't yet, but Daryl's setting me up to like get to do a consultation with Elena Passarello. Like I'm going to get to give her my work. And so that's, something cool that we do get out here in the boonies is like meet people come and talk to us. So that's neat. And there, there is a TA ship that's kind of geared around that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So one of my TA ship right now, I don't work any in the writing center. I work on training new TAs. So my five extra hours kind of goes to that. There's another TA ship that's all writing center and working in midnight sun visiting writers and kind of running those two programs. And then I also saw there's this thing called FAC and FRAC. What is this <laughs> yeah. all about? <laughs> <laughs> so um, Friday Afternoon Club and Friday Recrea- Recreational Activity Club, <laughs> something like that. Um, I think that Friday Afternoon Club is 
supposed to be kind of a space where we can we can do craft talks or we can meet with agents or we can whatever somebody wants to bring us. That's a time that's sort of blocked out in our schedule for that kind of stuff. Recently, we were supposed to get to go on a tour of the large animal research station in Fairbanks and like see the muskoxen and reindeer. That was something we were going to do for Friday Afternoon Club. Um, so it could really be anything. It's just a space where neat things happen. That is the time that we have craft presentations with visiting writers is during that block. Frack is new this year, sort of. And I think that's just when people get together to go skiing, pretty much. <laughs> so essentially, it's just a blocked off t- time period, like Friday afternoons, where you can get together with other people in your MFA cohort and, and people from outside the cohort and, and like hang out? Yeah, like I bring my boyfriend to go to the large animal research station if that had happened. They had to shut that down because of COVID, but uh, or that tour. But yeah, he, you know, he'll go skiing and stuff and he's definitely not a writer that, and also things like, uh, we'll do some mission parties that hasn't happened for a while, but, um, we'll spend some of our English graduate organization money to all sit together in the library and submit and pay our submission fees with school money, which is nice. That's cool. And I I imagine just, you know, being in Fairbanks, especially if you're not from Alaska, it must be incredibly important to have a strong community. So having these kinds of opportunities to get together, kind of structured time to get together and do these kinds of things sounds great. Get to know everyone, get to know the new cohort when they come in. Yeah. And it's, it's a way of sharing skills. We have a woman in the program right now, Susan Sugai, who is, she's in her seventies and she's retired from oceanography and she is like the most incredible skier. And so she takes us skiing and like gives ski lessons once a year. She gets us all together and makes sure that all the new people know how to ski. And it's just really wonderful and sweet and lovely. And so next time she does that, I'm going to have everybody ski to my yurt and I'll make hot cocoa. That's kind of, that's, that's kind of the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course there is Permafrost Magazine, which is described as America's farthest North literary magazine that is published through the school there. So do you know anyone who's gotten the chance to work on that magazine? We all definitely have the chance if we want to. It's uh, currently my, my forever workshop friend, Allison is co-editor and she's dragged me in and I'm, I'm trying this year to actually be better at reading for permafrost. But yeah, that's a really cool opportunity. I, because of my lifestyle, haven't gotten super involved in the past. So this is my first semester is like actually being a good reader. And then you mentioned that like some of the activities you can do will replace those five hours that you're in the writing studio. Is permafrost the same? Like if you do work for permafrost, you can replace those, some of those hours? No, that's that's a entirely on the side gig. That'd be cool if it was, but <laughs> All right, well, put in my suggestion. <laughs> put that in the box. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so before we go, I want to give you the last word and the question I usually ask guests is what's one thing that you think the program does really well and what's one thing that you think that they could improve on? I think the program is really good at networking us in Alaska. I took this amazing class called Images of the North with Eric Heine, and it was wonderful because it was all about things that I'm totally interested in. And out of that class, I kind of started working on a project that 
took me into the archives. So I got to meet the archivist down in the basement of the library and then put something together out of that material that I presented at the Alaska Historical Society this past Saturday. Cool. And it was like, it's not my thesis. It's not really something that I'm super uh, invested in right now. But everybody at the Alaska Historical Society was stoked about it. And they all started sending me resources because I prefaced it with like, I'm a writer. I don't know what I'm doing. If you know anything about this, hook me up. And so now I have all of these like incredible historian friends that are connecting me to, to things that I had no idea about. And that that's something that I think our program does really well is is community, I guess, within our cohorts and across years and with totally different programs or associations or organizations or just people uh, for something that we could do better. I think, I mean, we should be better compensated as TAs. That's probably the biggest thing, but as for the actual program, I don't know. I kind of like it. <laughs> it's been really, it's been great for me because I'm because of who I am and what I've brought with me. So I, I don't know. It, it feels very Alaskan. There's some things that are a little sloppy, like nobody's going to remind you to do your paperwork and somebody's going to just yell at you when you forgot and you just kind of have to roll with it. And that's, that's just how we do things. And that's okay. I think if anyone listening is thinking about applying to the university of Alaska Fairbanks and going there for their MFA, they should plan on being flexible, right? (laughs) Definitely plan on being flexible. And if you, if you thrive in that kind of environment, it's a great option. Well, Keely, I think your life is really interesting. Your writing is really good. And the program sounds uh, pretty fascinating too. So I really appreciate you taking some time and, and chatting with me today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And yeah, I enjoyed it a whole lot.